From the failure of knowledge-based authentication to the increasing risks socially engineered schemes are posing for employees and customers, Gartner analyst Aviva Leighton says fraud challenges are mounting, and it's not just cybersecurity risks the financial industry and other sectors should be addressing. Here, Leighton, who is one of the featured presenters at Information Security Media Group's upcoming fraud summit, shares her insights about emerging trends and the steps organizations should take now to mitigate their risk and their potential for financial losses linked to fraud. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. Aviva, based on recent research that you've conducted, you've identified significant weaknesses in standard authentication practices used for online account access. So-called knowledge-based authentication is insufficient, you say, and it's a point you plan to address during your presentation at this month's Fraud Summit in New Jersey. Can you explain why KBA fails? Sure, Tracy. First, let me just say that this issue of KBA failures and uh, problems has been coming up for a few years. Uh, KBA is knowledge-based authentication based on external data. And it's a very convenient method for banks and other companies to use to prove an identity when they're conducting a high-risk transaction. So, for example, if you're cashing out an annuity as a consumer and you call the call center, the call center is going to start asking you to answer these secret questions. So it's very convenient. But for a few years now, we've been hearing complaints from our customers that the failure rate on KBI is on average 10 to 15%, and sometimes it can go as high as 30%. For example, with some of our healthcare insurance clients, uh, that insures populations without a lot of credit history, so new immigrants or students. Uh, this, we see the same thing in universities. So we've been hearing about these high failure rates for a few years, you know, 10 to 15 percent going up to 30 percent. And when we looked into it, what we found out is most of the failures are good people that can't answer the questions. So either there's not enough data on them because they're a new immigrant, for example, without a lot of data, or it could be that there's a typo in the credit records, or it just could be that the people that do have questions don't know what the answers are. That's happened to all of us because, for example, if you're asked where your mortgage is held, your mortgage may have been sold to three companies that you don't even know about, and you're still paying the old company when you write the check, but there's really a third company behind the scenes. At the same time, we've been hearing the bad people succeed. So for a few years now, I've been hearing from some of my bank colleagues and uh, fraud managers that when they do ask secret questions to verify an identity on a, a high-risk wire transaction, for example, that when they call that the user making the wire request, the phone's forwarded to someone else who's the fraudster because they've taken the time to forward the call of the victim. And then when the fraud analyst starts asking these questions, the call is forwarded to the fraudster, and the fraudster has all the answers to the questions. In fact, on some of the call recordings that fraud managers have listened to, they can actually hear the bad guy clicking through the screens trying to get to the right answer. And you may have seen the expose that Brian Krebs did about a week ago where he actually uncovered a botnet that was inside three major companies that provide information on identities and KBA. So it used to be uh, manual compromises 
where the uh, bad guys would fish employees at these data aggregators and get into the KBA databases, but now it's systematic compromise. So there's a whole range of reasons why KBA isn't working. So does that mean we're all going to run away from KBA? Probably not tomorrow, but it's got the banks thinking very hard about alternatives. Aviva, what about authentication generally? Do banking institutions and other industries, for that matter, rely too heavily on standard authentication practices, which require some of this user input? When banks start out looking for uh, a method to prevent fraud, most of them start thinking about authentication. Why is that? Because authentication is easy to understand and it's relatively easy to implement if you're using software-based implementation. So, for example, it's common for banks to use, of course, passwords, device identification, challenge questions that, uh, based on questions that the user registers at the time of setting up their account, and then sometimes even out-of-band authentication where the bank will send an SMS message or call the user uh, and deliver a one-time password. All those methods are relatively easy to implement, except for perhaps out-of-band because then you need a good phone number um, and people change phone numbers. Um, But because they're so easy to implement relatively, they're low-cost relatively, that's what most banks think about when they think about stopping account takeover. The more sophisticated banks that have been attacked for a while understand that that's not sufficient um, and that they need to do a lot more like that, a, a lot more than just authentication. But typically, the smaller banks that don't have a lot of security resources to spend, that's what they'll do. They'll focus on authentication. So then what solutions do you recommend, Aviva? Is it this layered approach? Yeah, we don't recommend that you rely solely on authentication. We've seen time and time again how authentication can be beaten. So anything going through a browser is subject to man-in-the-browser attacks and Trojans. It just wait for the user to authenticate and then pounce in. So you can't only rely on authentication. You can't even rely on out-of-band authentication because we've seen SIM swapping, we've seen call forwarding. You can rely on a layered approach, and that is starting with protecting the endpoint, trying to secure the browser, going all the way up to looking at the navigation, building profiles of users and accounts and looking for anomalies, doing that across channels. So what did the user do at the call center versus the online channel? versus the point-of-sale channel, and finally, big data analytics. At the end of the day, if you can't catch the criminals in line to the transaction or on the way up through these layers, hopefully by putting all your data together and smart people doing data analytics on information in your systems, you can find those needles in the haystack. For authentication, we recommend constant, continuous authentication. Um, And we're calling it behavioral authentication. So trying to put all these factors together about your user. You know, how do they navigate your systems? How do they hold their mobile phones? How do they type? Where's their general locations? What devices do they usually come in from? What kind of transactions are they usually transacting? What time of day do they usually transact? So constantly monitoring your user and building up a profile of all the different types of activities ranging from, you know, their physical activities, where they go and how they type, to their account activities, what type of transactions do they do. 
and you're continuously trying to verify if all this looks like the person you think it should be. You have to assume that criminals can get through one layer, they can get through two, they can even get through three. But if you have multiple layers up to five and you're continuously authenticating that user and continuously looking at their activities against their profile, you should be in pretty good shape. Aviva, to shift gears here a bit, you've also recently noted upticks in socially engineered schemes that exploit in-person communications. So it's not just these phishing attacks that criminal organizations are waging, and it's not just phishing attacks that banking institutions and others should be worried about. Why are these more personal and face-to-face scams garnering renewed interest among fraudsters? Well, as the banks tighten up their electronic controls, it's harder for the fraudsters to penetrate them. So they're turning to old-fashioned methods of seeing victims in person or showing up their branches uh, and trying to socially engineer the branch employees. So let me give you a couple examples. Um, I've heard about this first example from UK banks. I'm not sure it's happened yet in the US, although it usually moves from country to country, where some of the bad guys would show up at victims' houses in person and they'd be dressed either as police officers or as bank personnel. And they would show up, they'd typically pick elderly people, knock on the door and say, oh, your account's been taken over, where we regret to inform you that someone broke into your account, stole all your money, but don't worry, we're here to help you, and here are some forms we'd like you to sign, and after you sign these, we'll move all the money into this new account and we'll definitely get back the stolen funds and make you whole, and all you have to do is sign here. And, of course, you know, the, these innocent people are signing documents, and they don't realize that they're signing their financial life over to a fraudster. We've also heard of cases where service technicians, uh, well, actually bad guys dressed as service technicians, show up at a branch, for example, and say, oh, there's something, we're here to fix your safe, and we understand that it's broken, and so can you let us in and open it up, and we'll fix it for you. I mean, that's an extreme case, but I've heard that too. I've also heard of people showing up at branches and distract the teller and rewiring the little point-of-sale device where you swipe your debit card to authenticate to send those transactions to a criminal server. There's a more common case now that the criminals are doing, where they're actually logging in online to get check images. They're not moving money because they know that there's controls there. So they're getting the check image and taking that back to their office, so to speak, and creating forged checks and going into the branch and depositing those checks and taking out money based on those deposits. Um, and the systems aren't really equipped to deal with that yet. So the, you know, the teller will give the criminal their money after depositing the check, um, and then they'll make off with it. So we've seen different kinds of in-person attacks. We've also seen a lot of phone-based attacks. Many banks can tell you about how the criminals will call a targeted victim during a malware-based attack to say, oh, there's something wrong with our system right now, and your money request isn't going through. We need you to get the secondary authorization now and put it in this computer. So they're uh, socially engineering these corporations to get the dual authentication process all put in at one computer that they've taken over so they can wire funds. 
the list goes on and on, um, but the bottom line is as the banks get better at tightening up online controls, the fraudsters have to go into the in-person or the telephone route to get their jobs done. So talking about some of these over-the-phone scams, Aviva, from a banking institution perspective, call center fraud has been one that, that we've seen increases in. How are these types of call center schemes being waged in conjunction with cyber attacks such as DDoS? Well, we're definitely seeing a link between DDoS and fraud. And in many cases, it does target call centers. So here are some of the linkages. Well, one linkage is not really a call center linkage. It's a VRU, telephone banking linkage. And actually, in this case, it's just a DDoS attack against the VRU system. There's not a lot of fraud controls and telephony banking. The bad guys will just randomly dial into the VRU system and do brute force dictionary attacks, trying to guess the passwords of multiple accounts until they get in and transfer money. And they're doing this by just quickly rotating through and calling lots of calls per minute. So it's a DDoS attack against the phone system. We're also seeing DDoS attacks that distract bank personnel, and they may even shut down the wire system, uh, or not shut it down, but make it very hard to get to. Um, So the bad guys take advantage of that, and they'll call the call center and pretend they're a corporation that has to get a wire transfer done really quickly and socially engineer their way through the identity proofing process. They may have all the data they need to prove that they're actually someone else, and then they'll do the account takeover and the wire transfer that way. And we're also seeing a lot of cross-channel fraud. About 30% of the fraud involves the telephony channel and the online channel. So the bad guys will call the call center and actually, you know, get some information out of them or change information on an account, for example, an address or a phone number, and then go online and take money out. So when the confirmation goes to the address that is in the records, lo and behold, it's now going to the new address that was just changed to, which could be the criminal's post office box, for all we know, where the calls to verify accounts having money transferred out of them could go to another phone number that the criminal just had all the calls forwarded to by calling the call center. So there's different variations on these themes, but the bottom line is the bad guys will call the call center, get something out of the agents, maybe, you know, the answers to secret questions in some cases or changes to the account, and then go online and and move the money out. And so then what recommendations or solutions do you offer there to address some of these call center scams? There's a new type of technology that's come out recently, and I call it phone printing. So it's a lot like device fingerprinting for PCs, uh, where you look at the origination of the call, and you can't assume the caller ID showing up on the call center agent screen is correct. The criminals go through proxy servers to disguise their true location. They do that also when they call the call center. They'll go through an anonymizer service, so they disguise where they're really calling from. And if you have this phone printing technology, you can actually see that they're disguising their location, and you can get to the true location. And there's also other technologies that are what they call true caller ID. But what these have in common is that you're trying to see where is this call really coming from and what kind of phone is being used. 
the criminal pretends they're calling in from Kentucky, but you can tell by the acoustic quality and the spectrum on the call that this call is really 5,000 miles away and can't possibly be Kentucky. It looks like it's Eastern Europe. By doing that, you get an indication that, you know, this is a high-risk phone call. And there's also voice biometrics where you passively record the voices of the users calling, and over time you build a blacklist of the fraudsters' voices so that when they call again, you can flag that as a fraudster. Because typically these fraudsters, you know, they don't just strike once. They'll call back time and time again up to five, six times a month. Um, and it's a small group of them that attack the call centers. So you can record the voices and mark a voice as fraudulent once you confirm fraud on that account that was called about and then use that blacklist for future phone calls. So between voice biometrics, uh, passive voice biometrics, and phone printing, our clients are having a lot of success in stopping call center fraud. Are organizations adequately addressing some of these call center risks with education? You know, education is really important, and employees sometimes are innocent. They make simple mistakes, like trusting people to call in when they're really fraudsters. But uh, I would say about 50 to 70% effective. You can train people, you know, from day and night, and they can still fall for really good social engineering techniques. And it's not because they're stupid. It's because they're trying to provide good service to the customer. So employee education is definitely important, but if it's all you're relying on, it's simply not enough. And the same would be true for customer education. Aviva, I'd like to thank you again for your time this afternoon. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. You've been listening to Part 1 of a two-part interview with Aviva Lighton. Be sure to look for Part 2 on this website when Lighton discusses educating staff about socially engineered schemes and technology investments to address them. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.